1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. As soon, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raged within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success... He stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants will love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words 
in the years of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the entire time, before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number, to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the proclamation of his word and as well the hearing of this word for our hearts. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed your word to us, and we stand in your presence, asking you to bless the proclamation of the, your word, asking you to bless our hearing, our hearts as we hear. So, Father, that we may respond to you in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. Father, we pray all this for the glory of Christ. Amen. We are back in the story of 1 Samuel. Just as a reminder of uh, trying to understand and refresh our memory of the message of the whole book, uh, the book of 1 Samuel tells us of the journey from the chaos of self-rule to the king after God's own heart. Uh, this is the way we might summarize. If you were to think through what is the message of the book of 1 Samuel, it's the journey from the chaos of self-rule to the king after God's own heart. Uh, and so far, this journey has taken us through, through a number of ups and downs uh, in the first half of the book. In the previous chapter, chapter 17, the Lord raised up David to be a champion who would face uh, the invincible enemy of the Philistines, uh, the Goliath. Uh, the Lord enabled David to conquer Goliath. And David made it very clear that the battle with Goliath uh, was not his battle, but the Lord's battle. Uh, the Lord would give Goliath into David's hands in order to teach the Israelites an important lesson, and really to teach all the earth an important lesson. And that is that there is a God in Israel, and he does not need a spear or a sword to win the battle. Prior to the battle between David and Goliath, uh, the Lord raised up David, anointed David to be 
uh, the future promised king. But all that anointing has been secret. Uh, no one knows about it in a public way. And yet with this chapter, with chapter 18, we see the, the rise to honor uh, in the life of David. Uh, and as we will see, it's going to be not only a rise to honor, it's also going to be a rise to hatred. Uh, while many respond positively for, or towards David in this chapter, not everyone does. Uh, some, uh, some in this chapter will have the opposite response of honor and, and esteem. And we will see how this chapter sets the stage for the dynamic that David will encounter for the rest of this book while Saul is on the throne. As we look at this passage, if you like to take notes, uh, we will have three elements that will uh, form the structure of the message this morning. And really it is the, the three major components of this chapter. Uh, number one, reasons for David's success and honor. Reasons for David's success and honor. We see this chapter focusing on, on the rise of the honor and success that David experiences. So number one, reason. Second, we will look at responding with committed love. Responding with committed love. And thirdly, responding with continual rejection. Responding with continual rejection. Let's look at uh, this chapter. Let's look at this message and how the Lord raises David to success and honor. In this chapter, the author's aim is very clear. He emphasizes how David's previous victory over the Goliath was not just a one-time lucky shot, happened to be the right guy at the right time with the right stone hitting at the right spot in the right millisecond. No, that is not what David was about. David proved to be consistently successful in all his battles, and thus he grew in being honored and esteemed by the people of Israel. Notice how this story, how this chapter, begins and ends on highlighting the success of David. In verse 5, look at verse 5, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And look at the way this chapter ends. Verse 30. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David was more successful. Or had more success than all the servants of Saul. So that his name was highly esteemed. And this is, this is an emphasis the author wants to bring into this chapter. That after that first major victory over Goliath, the name of David continues to to rise in honor and esteem, and everyone around Saul sees it, gets it, and they respond with honor. Throughout this chapter, uh, there are other references to David's success. But the author does not stop simply at telling us, look, this guy was not just a lucky guy one day. No, this is a consistent and growing success that he's experiencing but it's not important for us just to know that David was growing in success. The author wants to tell us why. Why was it that, that David was growing in, in being successful in everything that he did? 
And the answer, the answer is explicitly given in verse 14. And it is repeated in other verses throughout the chapter. Look again at verse 14. David had success in all his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. For the Lord was with him. This is a reason why we must understand David was successful. The presence of the Lord was the cause of David's success. And this is important for us to hear today. It's important for us to understand about the story uh, of David. It was not what David could do for himself that mattered in his success. It was not David's skills or background or education or training or experience that is highlighted as the source of, of David's success. It was not even because David had good, we might say, human models, humanly speaking, or mentors. Instead, the cause for David's success and the rise to honor was the simple but profound truth and reality, the presence of God with David. The presence of the Lord with David makes a difference in David's life. This and this alone was the reason why he succeeded in green honor. And this is what Saul began lacking after he had turned away from the Lord through the disobedience uh, to the word of the Lord. God's presence with his people is able to empower his people for action and to bring fulfillment of God's plans. Why was David successful? Because the Lord had plans with David. And the Lord would ensure that no matter what David's background was, David will succeed and would succeed. Look at how the presence of the Lord with David empowers David to do more than anyone would have expected. We see this uh, in various ways people describe and talk about David. In this chapter, we hear quite a lot of people uh, give reports of how they view David. But there's only one sentence in which we get to hear how David thinks of himself. And that stands out a little bit in this chapter. While so many people, and the, the author gives us the words of how people think of David, there's only one sentence in which we're told how David thinks of himself. And that is at the end of verse 23. In the dialogue between the servants of Saul and, and David, when the servants come and propose to David that he should be the king's son-in-law, listen how David views himself. Listen how David wants others to view him. Now, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? Now, is this, in David's side, just a way to brush off these servants? Is this his, way, his polite way of saying no to the request of the king to be his son-in-law? No, it's not. Uh, this is... This is how David viewed himself. But remember where we are in the story of 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18 comes after 1 Samuel 17. And what happened in 1 Samuel 17? David had just become the star, the hero of the army of Israel by killing the Goliath. 
And here David could have easily presented himself, oh yeah, finally this is coming. I mean, I'm the one, after all, I'm the one who should have received the reward of, of marriage with a king's daughter. This was a king's promise, wasn't it, when I killed the Goliath? And I killed him with one stone. I mean, who, who was there to, around me to support me? David could have taken all that on himself and finally said, I, I deserve this. Yeah, finally I'm getting the reward I was promised. I'm the guy all the armies are looking to. But no. What does David think of himself? What does David remind himself of and reminds the servants of Saul about? That he is poor and with no reputation to be a match for the royal family. Now pause here for a moment. David had done a lot, had accomplished significant things, and yet all that accomplishment does not get to David's head. David had killed the Goliath. The, the women in, in, throughout the land were singing this new song by which David's name received greater honor than King Saul, yet these experiences don't get to David's head. David does not suffer from the entitlement virus that many of us are easily susceptible to thinking that a victory like the one over Goliath uh, gives him uh, extra rights and extra privileges. Instead of speaking about his accomplishments, David reminds himself and others about his lowly background. David has not forgotten that he is from a poor family and has no elite reputation. But this is the one the Lord has chosen. This is the, the one the Lord has chosen to honor and to bestow success upon. This entire chapter, my dear friends, I think is a fulfillment of Hannah's prayer from chapter 2 in 1 Samuel. Remember when we were at the beginning of the series and we worked through Hannah's prayer, we said that Hannah's prayer is like a summary of the major biblical lessons of this book of 1 Samuel. Uh, Hannah's prayer is like a table of contents for the, for the lessons that are to be communicated through the book of 1 Samuel. And chapter 18 fulfills one of the lines in that prayer. And it's this. Hannah says this about the Lord in 1 Samuel 2 verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. David's view of himself is that he is from a poor family with no reputation. And this is important because it highlights that the man whom God raises up to honor does not need to be, to be rich or renowned. The Lord is able to take, to turn the status of those who are lowly and to bestow on them great honor. And this is what the Lord does with David. The Lord is fulfilling some of those nuances and colors from Hannah's prayer. But it all is a result of the presence of the Lord with David, of the presence of, of God with his people. The presence of God with his people is able to empower his people for action and to bring fulfillment of God's plans 
and we see it in a microcosm way in David's life. Well, friends, consider the presence of God with us. Do we consider that the presence of God is the most important asset in our lives? More important than our skill? More important than our ability? More important than our wisdom or our knowledge? More important even than our reputation? More important than our social relationships? The presence of the Lord is more important than anything else that we could develop for ourselves. David was not known for his resources. David was not known for his reputation, but he became known for the presence of the Lord with him. And friends, what does it look like for you and I to cultivate and to be known for the presence of the Lord in our lives? Our reality is that if we are, if we are believers, if we're Christians, the reality is that uh, the Lord dwells in every single being, soul, who has turned away from sin and trusted in Christ for salvation. Unlike the Old Testament, where the Spirit of God and the presence of God with His people uh, was not a continual reality, in the New Covenant, the New Covenant that we read about earlier in the book of Ezekiel after the Lord's Supper, uh, in the New Covenant, God promises to change the heart, to cleanse the heart of idols, to cleanse the heart of, of sin, to give a new heart, and to promise to give the Spirit of God to dwell among His people, in His people. So that to be a Christian is to be someone in whom there is already a continual presence of God through the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit of God, Christ dwells in us. Oh, friends, this is the great news of what it means to be a Christian. But in the Old Testament, these realities were not happening on a continual basis. So David, later, when he brought the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, he uttered a song of thanksgiving. And one of the lines in that song of thanksgiving that David uttered is, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Well, friends, how do we cultivate and seek the presence of the Lord in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, in our gatherings? If you're a believer, the good news is the presence of the Lord is already in you. Be aware of that. If you forget that or if it feels like the Lord is far from you, remember the presence of the Lord is in all those who are His, all those who are united to Christ. That is a, that is a starting point for those of us who are believers if you're not a Christian this morning, if you have not turned away from sin, if you have not placed your trust in Christ for salvation, the presence of the Lord, the assurance of the presence of the Lord is not yet with you. But if you repent and trust in Christ, the Lord comes in, becomes part of who you are, revives your soul, begins dwelling in your heart. So I want to encourage you to turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. But for those of us who are His children, for those of us who are believers, how do we cultivate the presence of the Lord? He's already in us. How do we cultivate it? Well, friends, consider just acknowledging and remembering that wherever you are, the Lord is with you. So cultivate the presence of the Lord through prayer. 
ongoing prayer. Cultivate the presence of the Lord through spending time in His Word regularly so that you feed on the Word of Christ. In our busy society, in a culture that is easily uh, distracted by all kinds of media, one of the important ways we can seek the presence of the Lord is through quieting our minds, turning off media distractions, saying no to our busyness so that we can focus on the Lord. There are various ways in which you and I can pursue and seek to cultivate greater depth of focusing on the presence of the Lord. But I want to remind you, my dear friends, we don't, we don't work for bringing the presence of the Lord with us. If we are believers, the presence of the Lord is already with us. We can cultivate it and, and remind ourselves of it and act on it so that we turn to the Lord uh, in all our circumstances. What is the reason for David's success and honor? It is the presence of the Lord with him. I wonder if you are more interested in success and honor than in the presence of the Lord. I wonder if, if, if what characterizes a pursuit of your life is success and honor. And the, and the presence of the Lord oftentimes may feel like a, it's a filler when the other stuff has been done to the maximum of your capacity. What we can learn from David is to turn that upside down. It's when the presence of the Lord is a primary experience of our lives. As David would encourage us, seek his presence continually. When that is a primary experience and, and cultivation of our lives, the Lord in his ways can choose to give some of us increasing success. Others, the Lord may choose to take us through valleys of, of difficulty, of what looks like lack of success in the eyes of the world. But Friends, the presence of the Lord is a greater asset to us than any success or honor we may try to bestow upon ourselves. But what we see in the story is not only the, the reasons for David's success and honor, we see how people respond to David. And really this becomes the, the question for us. We're going to have two options. Responding with committed love or responding with continual rejection. Let's look at point number two in the message, responding with committed love. The development of the story, the, the, the rise to honor, to success in David's life, hits a high moment. Not at the end, but at the very beginning. Hits a high moment at the very beginning of the chapter in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, where we see Jonathan's response to David. Now, why is Jonathan's response important? Because Jonathan is supposed to be the successor in Saul's dynasty, if Saul's dynasty were to succeed. Now, we know from previous chapters that God decreed that Saul's dynasty will not succeed. But at this point, we're not certain that Jonathan knows that, and certainly Saul did not believe it. Because as we will see later in the book, Saul is hoping for Jonathan to be the successor. But at this point, Jonathan's response to David is really important because Jonathan is the next in line to be the king, humanly speaking. But notice how Jonathan responds to David. Twice we read in these verses that Jonathan loved David 
as his own soul. Now, the first time we were introduced to Jonathan in the book of 1 Samuel, remember when it was? Well, it was quite a few weeks and months ago. Um, in chapter 13, when Jonathan trusted God to give him victory in attacking a Philistine camp by himself, only with his arm bearer, needing to go through a crag and coming up. And the Philistines were up at the top. Humanly speaking, it was almost impossible to assume that, that two guys, Jonathan and his arm bearer, could win against a Philistine camp up at the top. And yet the Lord, the Lord gives Jonathan success because, the, because Jonathan trusted in the Lord. So when Jonathan met David, after seeing David's trust in the Lord against Goliath in the previous battle, Jonathan attached his affections to David. Jonathan's love for David became immediate. And Jonathan's love for David was manifested in two visible acts. First of all, John made, uh, Jonathan made a covenant with David, we're told. So it's not just a, an affections of, in terms of just feelings alone. It's a committed love. Affections uh, undergirded by a committed love. And second of all, a second way Jonathan shows his love for David is that Jonathan gives David his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, these, this act is significant. Giving these artifacts to David was significant. Because these were the means and, the, if you will, the weaponry that Jonathan used to protect himself. Many commentators suggest that this radical gift was a way for Jonathan to ascribe the responsibility of being the successor to kingship. Passing that responsibility to David. Jonathan did not merely love David, but entrusted what naturally belonged only to Jonathan as the expected successor of his father, King Saul. Jonathan's actions show that he does not hold on to these means of self-protection and power, but yields them to David. And uh, remember, at this time, giving a sword in Israel, why is that a big deal? At this time in the story, only two people in Israel had a sword. It was Saul and Jonathan. So for Jonathan to give his one of two swords in all Israel, to give it to someone else who was not part of the royal family, was a big deal. You know, I, uh, I mean, imagine, if I can contextualize this for us here in Texas, imagine that you only had one gun. And there's only one other Texan in all of Texas having a gun to protect himself. And you choose to give that gun to David. That's a big deal. It, it just, it's an entrustment of protection. Instead of Jonathan protecting himself and taking responsibility for self-protection, instead of Jonathan assuming and, and holding on to his expectation that he's the successor, he has a right to this advanced weaponry, he's giving it all to David. What an act of trust. What an act of surrendering his honor and giving it to David. As one 
theologian put it, this deed on Jonathan's part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against Christ, who is truly Israel's king. Oh, friends, I wonder if you see in Jonathan's actions a pattern of the the immediate response that, that people ought to have towards this yet not publicly revealed king, David. He's not the official king yet, but he's God's anointed king. And Jonathan figures out something. This man has a spirit of God. The presence of God is with him. Whatever this man puts his hand to will succeed. And Jonathan realizes, he's the one I want to have my armor. He's the one I want to trust for protection. Jonathan is not the only one who responds with love for David. The women of Israel were honoring David above Saul as they were singing and celebrating David's victories. In verse 7, we have the lyrics of this folk song that the women began singing in joy and celebration. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This song was fulfilling what God had spoken through Samuel earlier in the book. Remember when Samuel brought a decree to Saul that his kingship is over? Samuel told Saul that God is going to raise up a better king than himself. That was chapter 15. And here, just in chapter 18, we already see in the folk tales, songs of, of the people, of the women of Israel, that David is already a better song. Not just by little, but by, by tens more. And all Israel begins to notice that David had more success in battle than Saul or any of his servants. David was a man who came out and came in before the people. He was not aloof, distant, disengaged military leader. He was engaged actively with the people in the battles. And in verse 16, we read that all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And the third character that responds with love in this story is Michael, Saul's daughter. Look at verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So here we have the members of Saul's household. The chapter begins with Jonathan, uh, the successor to kingship normally, and one of Saul's daughters, Michael. Um, both love David. At this point, none of them know that David is the one God was planning to raise up to replace King Saul. Yet David's way of being, his demeanor, his attitude, his trust in the Lord solicits great affections from God's people towards him. But all these affections are placed in stark contrast with another kind of response to David. Before David was publicly known as a new king, David indeed solicited and was able to, to get the affections of the people, the affections of Saul's household, except Saul himself. So the rest of this chapter and the rest of the message focuses on, on really what becomes the, 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 the contrast to the positive response to David, and that is re responding with continual rejection. Responding with continual rejection. This is point number three in the message. Responding with continual rejection. Instead of committed love, instead of responding with granting 
honor and esteem to David, this hidden yet uh, still king to come? Saul responds differently. He responds with continual rejection. And notice how Saul's continual rejection develops. Notice a few stages, a few elements of the development of continual rejection. As we look at this, at these steps, I'd like for us to consider that the lessons for us to learn from Saul's response is not for us to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not the king. I'm not like Saul. Uh, this was just for Saul. I think the way Saul responds actually creates a pattern for what does it take for dominion, for the illegitimate king to really be exposed and, and, and shown that he's not the rightful king and will need eventually to give up his rights to the throne. That message, that pattern, dear friends, is a pattern for all of us in our spiritual lives, in our spiritual walk. So let's learn from, from, from Saul's way of dealing with David and developing uh, this continual rejection. Number one, what we see in, in Saul is jealousy. Jealousy. Saul could not rejoice in the victory that David won over Goliath. Saul could not rejoice in the victories that David accomplished for the good of God's people. Even though God had granted an incredible victory to his people through David, even though God began giving great success to David for the sake of the people of Israel, Saul's joy is hijacked from his heart. All of Israel is rejoicing. Victory all around. Everybody is happy and, and singing, except one guy. You say, what's wrong? Why would, why would Saul be unhappy and not be able to join in the, in the joy of success that Israel was experiencing from the Lord? The answer is, the culprit, the hijacker of the joy, is his own self-centeredness. He's not the ultimate object of those songs. He's part of the songs, but he's violin number two. He's not violin number one. And Saul has a hard time with that. It doesn't matter how, how big the corporate success of the people of God has been. If he's not number one, his joy is taken. Look at verse 8. Saul was very angry that his, this saying, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Why is Saul angry? Because he's not number one. And being number two is just not enough. I'm not the first. It doesn't matter what the nation accomplishes if I'm not recognized as the first. I'm mad. I'm disappointed. Oh, friends, um, let, me, let me take you into a little bit of the, some of the dynamics we have in our family with our children. I want to be first. Whatever happens, if they're not the first, if one of them is not the first, we get to hear about it. Even when we pray, 
we begin to have fights and conversations. Who gets to pray first? Ask our kids. These are our conversations. I did not teach them that. I tried to teach them the opposite. But our human nature, which I did pass on, was passed on to them as well. The desire to be first. Well, friends, that is, that is the essence of sin. The desire to be first above all things, including our Creator. Oh, friends, I, wanna, I want us to see the, that jealousy can happen at the spiritual level as well. Jealousy is the response our hearts develop when someone else gets what we think we deserve. What robs us of the joy of God's work and victories is when we are not at the center of it. God granted victory to his people, and he did it through someone else other than Saul. And Saul cannot rejoice, he cannot receive it, because he's not at the center of it. Let me, let me take this as an application corporately. Imagine that as a church, if we were to pray heavily and consistently and, and in, in very intentional ways for the Lord to bring revival to the city of Austin. And we pray for it, we wait for it. We do everything God's ways, and then the Lord decides to answer the prayer. But instead of, of growing our church leaps and bounds, he grows the church next door. Would we be happy for that? If the Lord chooses to act and show his power and victory, and he does it, and we are not at the center of it, would that steal our joy? Consider how often, my friends, we want to do great things for God. But deep down in our hearts, we just hope that we are somewhere in the spotlight. We're part of the filter through which God shows his light to the world. Imagine if, what would it look like for us to, to, to be content that whatever the Lord chooses to do, whether he chooses to give us great victories, great success, or what, what looks like small success in the eyes of the world, as long as he's number one and we're number two, as long as we're not number one, let me put it that way, as long as we're not number one, it is sufficient. Saul's anger became strong because Saul was not number one. He was being dethroned in the admiration of the people. He already heard from the Lord that his throne is coming to an end. But now the rubber meets the road when the admiration of the people shifts away from Saul to this other nobody from a poor background who had a quote-unquote lucky shot. And, and, and Saul cannot, cannot get it. He will not let go of it. In verse 11 and 10 and 11, we see another episode when Saul becomes tormented by a harmful spirit from God. That was another way of the Lord saying, I'm removing my presence from you, Saul, and I'm not just removing my presence from you. I, through my removal of my presence, I am allowing the opposite to come to you, and it's still coming under my control. Harmful spirits from the Lord. And Saul's anger gets again incited, and he is, he's ready to kill David. 
David was a means that, that the Lord used to calm Saul down when he had these difficult moments. And yet, while playing the harp, Saul grabs a sword and, and throws it at David, not once, but twice. And this leads us to, the second, to see the second response from David, uh, from Saul. The first one was jealousy. The second one is fear. Look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. There's a bit of irony in this verse. If anyone, humanly speaking, had reasons to be afraid at this moment, after being uh, the object, the target of Saul's spears, it was David. Saul had a spear. Saul was the guy in charge. David is the underdog, if you will, in the story at this point. But no, it's Saul who becomes afraid of David. Why? Because the presence of the Lord was with David and had departed from Saul. Oh, friends, after seeing the king throwing the spear at David twice, would you not be afraid? And yet, the king is the one afraid. The presence of the Lord with us, dear friends, can calm our fears. When we feel the Lord distant, when we feel alone, we, when we feel on our own, fear increases. How different this is from what David experienced and wrote in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. The presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord and our awareness of his presence with us is a great medicine for our fears. But Saul had none of it. And thus he responds with fear. Saul's third response is manipulation. So he responds with jealousy. He responds with fear. He responds with manipulation. If Saul's first attempt to kill David failed, he now developed a more disguised trap to avenge against David. He plans to give his daughters in marriage to David in exchange of getting David's commitment to fight against the Philistines. In the first attempt to marry, for marriage uh, with Saul's oldest daughter, Merab, fails. Saul promises it and then changes his mind, chooses to give somebody else last minute. Then he tries a second time with Milka, Michael, uh, and in both attempts, the narrator tells us what Saul was thinking. And we get three times Saul's thoughts. Now you're wondering yourself, all right, you told me once, you told me twice. Why do you need to tell me three times what Saul is thinking? And it's the same thing all three times. It's because that's the emphasis. The author wants us to see What's, what was going on in Saul's mind while he was trying to manipulate the situation? Look at verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be a valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And this is repeated again in verse 21. And it's repeated again in verse 25. Let me just read the verse 25. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. This is what 
motivated Saul. This is why he wanted to give his daughters in marriage. How wicked of Saul to want to put his daughters to marry this man, hoping that he will be killed so that his daughters will also become widows. Saul shows no love for his family. He only wants to use them for his plans. A man who does not have the presence of God in him will prefer to use people, even his own family, for his personal agenda. And what is worse is to see Saul's lack of honesty, which often, by the way, oftentimes goes with manipulation. It's a subset of manipulation. Notice what Saul commanded his servants to speak to David. Verse 22, Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you. What a lie. What a lie. But that's what manipulation does. Manipulation seeks to present things in a positive light when in fact the exact opposite is in our hearts. Friends, speaking the opposite of what is in your heart is dangerous. Now, let me make a nuance of clarification. Sometimes when our hearts are filled with anger, we want to we make sure that we do not speak in anger to others in a way that destroys them. There are times when we need to put a, a bridle on, on the anger in our own hearts so that we don't just let stuff out of our hearts in ways that destroy others. But that's not what's going on here. Here, while, they, while Saul had anger against David, he presented things in such a positive light, even presenting things as the opposite. The king delights in you. That's flattery. Now, by the way, there's a big difference between gossip and flattery. You know the difference? Gossip is when you speak behind someone's back what you cannot say to his front, to his face. Gossip is when you speak behind someone's back what you cannot say to his face. Flattery is when you speak to someone's face what you cannot say behind his back. It's a big difference. Flattery is when you speak to someone's, what you um, speak to someone's face, what you cannot and do not speak behind his back. Saul just engaged in flattery. The king delights in you. No, the truth is the king wants to kill you. And he's trying to use the Philistines to kill you so that his hands will be clean. Be cautious, my dear friends, of falling in the trap of flattery. Speaking to someone what you cannot speak behind that person. Flattery is one of the means we use to manipulate people. Watch out for it. Saul's flattery and the price he set for David as a bride price leads David to accept the offer and to be willing to marry into the royal family even though he had no resources of his own. But the Lord enables him. He goes out, kills 200 Philistines, and uh, double the amount that Saul asked for. And uh, David marries Michael. Michael loves him. And at this point, we realize, and David re uh, Saul realizes another dimension, even more fear. Even more fear. This is a climactic response from Saul. Even more fear and continual rejection. 
Verse 28 and 29, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Friends, when, when Saul realizes that truly the Lord is with this man, David, that, that even his daughter is on his side, at this point Saul does not know about Jonathan's affections and about Jonathan's covenant with David. That was, to this, to this moment, we'll know later that Saul will become surprised to hear of what Jonathan had done. So right now, Saul realizes even a member of his family is now siding with David. The Lord has sided with David. A member of his family has sided with David. And instead of letting these messages caution him, challenge him, and slow down and reconsider his response... Instead of responding with humility and surrender, Saul grows in his determination to fight David. For, Dave, for Saul, more fear means more rejection. Notice the text does not say that David was Saul's enemy. It says that Saul was David's enemy continually. This is the climactic moment in the story. After being convinced that the Lord was siding with David, nevertheless, Saul chooses to keep fighting against David. And consider the, the lack of logic in Saul's thinking for a moment. If the Lord was with David in chapter 17, fighting against the Goliath, would it not make sense for Saul to say, if I finally become convinced the Lord is with this guy, I surrender. I give up trying to fight against him. I mean, Goliath was not able to, 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 to kill him. What, what hopes do I have to kill him? That would make sense, wouldn't that? But that's what happens when we respond out of fear. Fear to protect ourselves. Fear to keep being number one. This, this, what looks logical makes no more sense. So we act in, in actually sinful logic. And the sinful logic is continue to rebel against the Lord. Continue to rebel against the people of the Lord. Continue to rebel against the side the Lord takes. Oh, friends, this is the sinful logic of sin. How I wish Saul had learned a lesson from chapter 17, but he doesn't. He does not understand that no one can stand the Lord or his servants. Saul's response reveals the sheer self-reliance and self-confidence and arrogance to remain committed to ongoing enmity against the one the Lord chooses. Why? Because Saul wants to hold on to the throne. And this puts us with these two responses, committed love or continual rejection. These are the two responses that we see in our text towards David. In this chapter, David takes a spotlight away from Saul, rightly so, because the Lord has bestowed it upon David. And we see how people respond to the shift of the spotlight from Israel's rejected king, Saul, to Israel's promised king, David, whose anointing is still hidden from the public eye. Yet Saul's oldest son realizes something significant in David and responds with great affection, with great commitment, and with great surrender of his power. Friends, David's growth in power and success in battles is a pattern that the Lord was planning to use in setting up another king, the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus. 
responding to David's early rise to power and influence is a pattern for us as we consider how to respond to Jesus, either with a committed love and surrender to him or with a continual rejection of him. People reject Jesus because Jesus takes a spotlight away from us, rightly so. And we, in our sinfulness, never like it. Unless the Spirit of God changes our hearts to embrace God's worldview, to embrace God's values, to embrace God's ways, to embrace God's truth, unless the Lord changes our hearts to embrace God, we would never like for anyone to take the spotlight away from us. We want to rule our lives. This is what sin is. And the gospel tells us that God had sent his son Jesus to win the battles for us. To win against the enemy that could never win against our sin and our death. But part of winning the battle that we could never win on our own is also taking the spotlight away from us. And the question is, if we are going to be okay with that, if we're going to respond with with a loving commitment to the Lord or with continual rejection because of jealousy, because of fear, because of a desire and hope that we can get more by manipulation than by surrender. Oh, friends, the question for us today is, which side are we going to take?